Yeah. Yeah, this is a weird one. Usually, like, everybody I talk to I know really well. And I've met you, like, once. Once. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even... So, hey, nice to meet you. So, see you too. <laughs> so, we could, just, we could just start and then I'll learn about you and so will, like, everybody who's listening. Sure. Okay. All right. So, this is the Dialogue Box with Gwen Frey. This week, I'm joined with Scott Warner, game director at Ubisoft. Hi. Hello. You work at uh, Ubisoft San Francisco, and the reason this is interesting to me is I lived in San Francisco, and I didn't know Ubisoft was out there. Uh, like when I think, that's, yeah, yeah, that, that's true of everyone, including the company, <laughs> <laughs> including Ubisoft. <laughs> yeah, I used to work in San Francisco at um, EA, mm-hmm. and. I fantasized about walking walking down the street to Ubisoft San Francisco to work. And every time I would ping them, they would say, oh, you know, San Francisco is not really a studio. But if you're interested in um, working in Montreal or Singapore, we have a job for you. I'm like, OK, <laughs> that's not, not where I want to live. Yeah. But um, it's just the, the truth is that San Francisco has kind of been an odd studio for a long time. So it started life as part of the publishing group and i think they were working on the pets title or something like that and then eventually it became rocksmith they worked on and the south park game and it's kind of been under the under the radar for for nearly 10 years no but stick of truth was huge i love the south park game that was Uh, this is the second one not the first one oh okay got it yeah yeah the the fractured butthole (laughs) (laughs) still good yeah still good yeah those those were such an interesting divergence for Ubisoft too. I didn't even realize that was mm-hmm. Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did yeah. Ubisoft publish that or? Uh, yeah, um, I don't know all the details in terms of how it became a Ubisoft title for um, the second game, but yeah, it was totally driven by the San Francisco studio and uh, the South Park studio. So that's the last thing that this studio was up to until now. Until now, and now, mm-hmm. now you're there. You're the game director mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So how? Break this down. You were in San Francisco. You're working at, I'm guessing, EA Redwood Shores. Then the, mm-hmm. the one down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, in Ubisoft is in the city San Francisco, or is it down near EA Redwood? It's right next to the Giant Stadium, so it's okay. really close to Double Fine, actually. Um, <laughs> in uh, I don't know what that area of San Francisco is called. Let's just say Soma. So it's uh, really, it's kind of at this point, the only AAA studio in the, in the city, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, it's also crazy to operate there because it's expensive, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was working at, at Visceral for about three years. And then I actually went to Facebook for about a year and a half, moved to Seattle. And then um, for a variety of reasons, Uh, didn't want to work at Facebook anymore. And um, at that same time, a a startup company with some people that I worked with from Visceral asked me if I would become their game director. And, um, but uh, they were located in South San Francisco. So then I had to come back here and uh, that imploded in about three months. (laughs) Oh God. So you moved to San Francisco, had a job for Mm -hmm. three months and then it all fell apart. Yeah. And, uh, but right after I got the job with the startup, UB contacted me and said, Hey, you know, you've been talking to us about a San Francisco job for a long time. Well, now we have one. (laughs) I'm like, I just started a a job. (laughs) So, but, uh, serendipitously that went out of 
business and uh, I started the the gig at San Francisco. Jeez, that's rough. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you've been, you, when you were at Facebook, were you still working on games or is this like you're coming back to games after a while? No. Yeah. So basically what happened was I was working on the ragtag project at um, Visceral and for a variety of reasons that didn't work out. So um, I kind of got a little bit tired of some aspects of games and thought I wanted to try and do something totally different. And the opportunity through Facebook and Oculus became available. So I tried that out for a little bit with the the Seattle studio, which basically created a lot of the new user experiences uh, for the Oculus. So Got like it. our studio created the first contact robot demo and um, the, the big sort of T-Rex thing that everybody's seen with it walking over you and all that. Right. Um, were you passionate? And, uh, about, oh, I was going to ask. Were you passionate about VR? What uh, was was it? Just like you wanted to get out of games, and this looked like an escape route, or I just wanted to try something different because um, for about ten years, I'd kind of gone through the sort of giant project, assemble team, go pitch something, and have a little bit of the pitch part be out of your control once it gets up into like the upper management, mm-hmm. and. Um, I just wanted to try something totally different. And there was a lot of people, obviously at Oculus, that have been through through games and um, where I've been in, in the gaming industry in some ways. So I thought it would be kind of kindred spirits and let's work on something different. And what I found was there's there's certainly a lot of, um, there's certainly a lot of investment at Facebook in Oculus. I mean, but people's personal investment in VR as a, as a platform. Um, I would consider myself just a game maker from birth and I'm not really interested in the medium so much as making a game. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were mostly making new user experiences. And I think uh, I don't think Facebook um, to, I think to be happy there, you have to be invested deeply in the platform, not necessarily in making a game. And if that's true, then you'll, then you can be happy there. But I think if your, your, your primary interest is to, to make, a game of some sort, then you're probably best off being in a third party or working at a game company. Well, that makes sense in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think the mm-hmm. way you, like, VR is going to explode not because of games, but because of something else. And yeah. so Facebook's desperately trying to find that something else, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it made sense, yeah, early to, to, to focus on games, but certainly their, their interests and ambitions are way beyond just one medium, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, do you have feelings about Alex being announced and the the push that Valve is doing for VR now? Because they are. It's certainly. I mean, it's certainly the first. I mean, the 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 big issue with or a big issue with VR in the last few years has been, um, there really isn't enough money for individual projects to compete with a AAA thing. Mm-hmm. So you end up having these kind of very small experiences or or like a really flashy tech demo of some sort. And nothing that's kind of a fully featured sort of AAA experience. So this will be the f- one of the first ones, and so it's exciting from that perspective. And then it's exciting that it's going to be, you know, on Index, and I assume you can use the Quest for it, and so you don't have to put up with the kind of old um, sort of um, jerry-rigged sort of a feature set of the old old VR units. And um, it'll be kind of the first big test to see if you know there's still kind of an interest in it sort of at a mass scale than there was you know say like four years ago when it first launched yeah i mean I've been and then half-life 
Yeah, of course, right? Yeah. I, it's weird because I read, um, I've been reading about it and I have a lot of friends. My friends seem split and I think it's, I'm not sure if it's an age thing or a regional thing. Nah, mm-hmm. it, it might be a regional, but some people are like, no, VR is dead. This, is, this isn't going to move the needle. And some people are like, oh, now VR is back because Valve is doing this. And it, it uh, it's hard to say. Like, I, I know I know a lot of people who are just wildly um, uninterested, who feel like the Half-Life was a long time ago. I know a lot of people who are diehard fans who are, like, literally buying an index just to play this one game. Mm-hmm. I, it's, ah, this is a hard one for me to predict. Like, I don't, uh, I don't personally, like, <clears throat> I'm, I like AR. I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet. I don't know if. I don't know if it's a gimmick, and I definitely see the the difficulty trying to get a game funded that's real for VR too. Like nobody in this day, the, the way you pitch games now, the way that games are successful is by being multi-platform. In mm-hmm. a way, it's almost a detriment for any platform to have anything too specific. Like mm-hmm. I think Google's going to have a lot of a similar problem trying to get very spe- games that work well on Stadia unless they fund them themselves. You know what I mean? Getting mm-hmm. a third-party studio to be extremely excited about um, doing something that will only work on one platform is basically difficult you basically have to buy that studio mm-hmm. uh, yeah and, and you know speaking for my company they they certainly want to be on every platform imaginable so <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah it'll be interesting i can't gauge it either i don't know what like the public perception of half-life is at this point and how that sort of intersects with vr i mean it it's very different than 15 years ago where it was like yes of course i'm going to download steam you know yeah. and use that to get half-life to the um, whereas now I don't know, you know, how does the, the industry where, you know, lots of people love League of Legends and Fortnite and, mm-hmm. you know, other sort of things that sort of mass scale, like, are they still interested in Half-Life? I am, but I don't yeah. know. I don't know how everybody else is. <laughs> it is hard. I think, uh, the thing that interests me about this is everybody else in VR is going for the mass consumer, trying to find experiences that aren't game experiences. Like mm-hmm. Facebook is trying to reach out to like every age group whereas valve is going i mean half-life appeals to the hardcore gamer right Mm -hmm. this is the first play i've seen in vr to go to go to core gamers not necessarily tech nerds that want to play with a new toy or um not trying to be like replace google maps with vr stuff and ar stuff like this is the first play i've seen it's just like no this is for hardcore gamers specifically and we're going to try to move units like that which is interesting yeah yeah it's um it's certainly, it, it is what I expected to happen at some point, is that Valve had obviously taken a lot of interest and in, we're serious about VR, um, but we're just wondering when they were going to use um, Half-Life as the Trojan horse for it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, it was a bold move. I'm still excited mm-hmm. about that. So Yeah. So, all right, I, I interrupted you a lot there, though. Okay, so you were, <laughs> you were in the industry for 10 years, you were pitching loads of projects. Uh, you kind of, after 10 years, you're like, ugh, you went to Facebook uh, to try something else. You found you still wanted to make games. And Facebook, they're doing a lot of stuff with VR. They're doing cool stuff, but they weren't making games. So you go back to San Francisco to work at your friend's startup as mm-hmm. like a game director there. And they, uh, that shit hits the fan in some way, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But yep. Ubisoft, San Francisco, which I didn't even know existed, uh, mm-hmm. contacted you and was like, yo, Scott, come be our game director. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Word. And now you're, how long ago was that? 
that's a year and a half ago now. A year and so a half I, ago. I, yeah. So I started like in, I think, March, no, April of 2019. So, okay. and you know, what they, what they pitched to me at the time was like, wow, that's really cool. And then, you know, that's obviously you know, things inside of uh, studios change and evolve and whatnot. And now we are super excited about the path we're on right now uh, that we haven't announced, but we've been, you know, hiring out for and, um, and uh, the team is a combination of new and old. So it's, you know, like it's, for me, it's kind of being back in sort of a proper game studio after doing some interesting sort of different things or experiments. I dig it. And so how big was the studio when you started there and how big is it now? Mm, It's still relatively small. Um, It's so it's basically we're divided. uh, We're a studio. We have multiple projects happening at any time. Mm. Um, So it's, I think it's over a hundred, but how many people on, on specific projects depends on the current state of things. We've been hiring a few people, but um, our studio will probably always start, stay relatively small compared to, say, Montreal projects that can go in the many hundreds. Um, <laughs> relatively small is relative for Ubisoft is something. Yeah. Like Ubisoft, <laughs> I swear, Ubisoft solves problems by throwing a couple hundred people at them. Like, I know. The it's way crazy. <laughs> I, well, it's interesting. It's definitely mm-hmm. like I was reading somewhere recently that the way Ubisoft works is that they have a small core team, small for them being like, I'm guessing 30 develop Mm -hmm. a game up to a certain point and then they just put a couple hundred people on the project as well as like a producer to help close it out and then spend a year closing it out they just literally drop like no shit three four hundred people on a project uh yeah so is that your deal like what do you manage the entire studio or just one team at the studio are you managing like uh we are so uh part of the reason that people don't know about us is that even inside of Ubisoft, most people don't notice about, know about us. So we, um, we kind of operate like a little bit outside of the typical um, sort of Ubisoft structure or manner in which they make things. Um, And so, you know, how we arrange the studio and how we do things does not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily exactly how they do things in Montreal or Paris or anywhere else. Um, We don't expect that, you know, any of our projects will eventually reach sort of like, you know, Far Cry or Assassin's Creed numbers in terms of bodies on the, on the project, just because in order to operate at San Francisco, it's just, it's super expensive and we have to be pretty lean about how we do things. Um, so, um, you know, how we kind of start and stop and close and get things through the usual process at UB is, um, slightly, slightly different, I think, but, um you know a lot of the a lot of the if not necessarily the bodies and the production side of things certainly a lot of the sort of uh company-wide principles apply to how we think about things so for example ub has a a process known as the rational game design that they like people to think about and um, use as an attempt to try and do some unification and, and smart design thinking across the board for all for all studios and so there's some level of kind of guidance um, at the top that helps all studios along regardless of where they're at or how how large they are mm-hmm. um, but then each studio is is quite a bit different from one another in terms of how they actually get things done so if you were to look at our studio and the size of how we are uh, versus if you visit montreal and just walk into any one of those buildings, you're like, what is this? <laughs> this is like some game metropolis or something. 
I see. So, yeah. so when you were brought on, you were brought on to like design a new game for the Ubisoft San Francisco studio. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you, you okay? So this is a studio with a lot of projects going on. Mm-hmm. You were brought on to break, to spin up like a new team within the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, sort of. It's a uh, not a new team, but rather like we're adding a few new people mm-hmm. uh, based on some expertise we need, and then there's just natural kind of you know, churn in the studio from people starting and stopping and going to other places. So, sure. so, so we're kind of at this point, sort of a, a mixture of, of new and old on our team. Got it. Mm-hmm. And I guess you can't tell me if you're doing a new South Park game or not. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we've been, but, so we can't a, say it's, Oh, sorry. Are you, can you say if it's a new IP that you guys are working on? Like, is it a new thing? Mm, no. Um, uh, we, Basically, we haven't announced any details about it. We've just okay. all we've been doing that um, is anything public is that we've just been hiring against roles. So we have job recs up, and mm-hmm. um, they talk about certain expertise and all that, and that's about it. So, God, um, you know, it's all typical, you know, publisher stuff. Yeah, for a company. I it's all coming back to me now. Like, <laughs> you're. I remember going. Oh God, I remember my first like when I was first starting out. I had an interview and they're like, come, uh, I had to apply. My friend encouraged me to apply to the mm-hmm. studio that I'd never heard of that was working on a game that was not announced and they couldn't tell me anything about over the phone. And I couldn't find out what I was even going to be working on hypothetically until I flew out to the studio and did the damn interview. And then they were like, okay, now we can tell you what you're working on. I'm like, well, what if I didn't like this? Now we've wasted all this money and time. <laughs> like, boy, can't you just... But I, I get it. It's it's so important to keep things secret these days. And yes, big publishers fight so hard to keep their uh, their secret. I do open we, dev now, so I'm like in a different yeah. world. If we if we um if we bring people on for an on site, you know, typically we're a lot more forthcoming about what we're up to because of NDAs and all that stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, what you're talking about definitely was a thing when, uh, like you know, a little over ten years ago. I was uh, involved with 343 and starting that up. And Mm. uh, at that time, a lot of the Connect stuff was starting at the same time. So oftentimes candidates would come in and interview for 343 and then they would interview with the Connect group. And uh, the Connect group couldn't tell them anything. So like they just had to kind of pitch around. This is something interesting and new and novel. And they'd be like, well, what is it? And they're like, we can't tell you about anything at all (laughs) and i just wondered i'm like how do you how do you convince someone to go work for something when the information is so scant on what they're going to be doing it's crazy um at least for for uh 343 they had a reasonable assumption of what it was you know even if we didn't tell them as much but for for that for the connector it was crazy yeah Um, i can't even imagine that would be very difficult to hire are you my my first job was like i walked in 20 god this is now 21 years ago i walked in the door of interplay and said uh i want a job like cool (laughs) here's here's the things we're doing okay oh god now they'd call the police (laughs) if anybody did that now somebody somebody showed up at irrational one time and they were just Uh, and it said the receptionist was like how did you find us we don't have our address listed you don't you can't just come here you have to apply online because it's a concern right like now it's like actually a safety thing Oh, yeah. the industry's totally changed. I know. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. 
I mean, back then it wasn't as popular. Now there's like more game dev students than there are jobs and so forth. I it would yeah. So like, um, I did a talk at USC. I think it was in 2011, and I was in the middle of of uh, building Halo Four. Uh-huh. And um, it was just on typical first-person shooter level design stuff. And afterwards, someone told me, "Oh, you know, we have like this, you know, chat channel that happens during the the talk, and some people are unhappy that you're here." And I said, "Oh, that's weird. Why is that?" They're like, "Well, they think you represent major corporations." And it was the first time. So I'd grown up with like punk. And uh, <laughs> and was kind of aware of us versus them stuff, but I never heard that in games because when I started, we were all still like hobbyists, and you kind of you could just walk in the door somewhere and get a job. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was speaking at USC, it obviously like things had really kind of kickstarted to where you had programs and we'd had interns and there was professional game degrees and whatnot. So um, that was the first inkling I had that like there was something in independent projects in a spirit where people not only um weren't interested in sort of joining a corporation or something they were also interested in doing very different things so uh like when people yeah. became interested in going indie you think that was kind of mm-hmm. like- well i mean it was probably before that but like that was right around the time you started there there was a lot of attention around like you know braid and fez and yeah yeah the first kind of like, indie yeah. Wave, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the good thing was that, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that were starting to do this were interested in making very different experiences, which was to me really cool. But at the same time, I, I kind of been, uh, it was just kind of a revelation to me that someone would consider Halo to be like something that's produced by a corporation for mass consumption or something where I'm like, this is just a shooter, man. Yeah, <laughs> this is like shoot that people like and wanted to make, but you know, it makes it make, it made sense to me immediately. Well, it's all relative. It's like when you mm-hmm. kept saying earlier when you were saying, uh, you know, that our studio is small relatively, and I'm like, relative to what? To Ubisoft? What does that mean? Does that mean you're only? And in the end, it's like, oh, we're only a hundred people. Yeah. Like <laughs> talking to somebody that works alone in a fucking I know yeah. office, right? Like in my house, right? Like it's just so different. Mm-hmm. It's also relative, and I don't think like. I mean, Halo is, I mean, at that point, you're kind of the man. Like, that's actually Mm -hmm. true, right? Like, Halo Mm -hmm. is the market leader. It's owned by Microsoft, right? Mm -hmm. You're not exactly, you know, some scrappy startup in Silicon Valley at this point. No, Um, at at that point, when they, when someone told me that, uh, digging back to my, like, old music roots, I, I saw us as like, oh, we're like Pink Floyd. And we're like these, like, really crazy musicians who are really good at the specific thing and we go and do these big sort of like tours of stadiums and here are these new people who are like not only can i not get achieve that i don't want to achieve that because that's just a bunch of boring old people yeah. up on stage doing something right yeah so. and you're like wait no you're supposed to be my groupies right right <laughs> this is all wrong no i love um, it even and i've never had the experience that you had of making something you know, by myself first, like when I started, it was like a team of 20. Mm-hmm. So even at that point we were, I mean, I guess role-playing games, that was the first thing I, the first few years I made role-playing games. And um, like then, t- tabletop games. No, I made, um, I, I joined Black Isle at the right time. So we were making Fallout and Planescape and Jesus, uh, Icewind Dale. 
I didn't realize. He, damn, man, that's awesome. All right, hmm. so you, how did you convince him to hire you? How old were you? <laughs> Young. <laughs> were you just like, yo, do you need a warm body? And they're like, I guess. Kind of. Wow. Kind of, because I, because I, I didn't know, um, I didn't think I was going to go into games. I, I definitely grew up with them, and I had made games and and played them and all that. But um, this was at the still at the time where it didn't seem like it was a real career. So I was off studying international relations. And um, then some friends of mine were in games and, and they seemed to be having a great time. And I thought, okay, well, I really hate my current major and what I'm doing. So maybe I can give this a shot. So I, I think I went to the GDC that year and uh, it became very clear to me that I wasn't an artist or that I wasn't an engineer. So therefore no job. <laughs> So, but I did get the address of Interplay and I went down there and asked them if, um, I just kind of went in the front door. I'm like, do you have jobs available? And um, they had testing, compliance, proofreading, that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Um, And so very quickly I was testing uh, Fallout 2 and just going over like, you know, the Black Isle games were just famous for so much text. And so you just have to like read and read and read over and over again. Uh, But through that, I befriended some people on the on the interplay team mostly um chris avalon and uh colin mccomb and then they saw that i was pretty invested in what they were doing so they gave me a they found a way to give me a design gig on planescape and then that was my first job or my first design job oh dude cool Mm -hmm. jesus you have been around that's awesome yeah weird but what i was saying before is like now you're now you're the man working in microsoft i know (laughs) yeah i don't i was just we had a party on uh, friday night with some game developers um and uh i was just i'm talking to people i was talking to actually the the guy who um uh, what's his name who created door fortress and uh oh shit yeah and uh i just realized i'm like i don't know how this happened but like somehow i became the shooter guy even though I started off in like an incredibly surreal uh, role-playing game about your existence as a person. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how that happened, but that's that's the trajectory that went. Um, I think at some point when I was making role-playing games, I was concerned that if I didn't uh, expand my horizons a little bit, I might be limiting my career growth. So, because it seemed at that time like everything was transitioning to consoles Mm-hmm. And if I was just going to be like a quest designer and doing a little bit of scripting, that probably would limit uh, my future. So, like uh, after a few years there, I really wanted to try and go work for an action studio. So yeah, what was your first action studio then? Pandemic. Pandemic. Yeah. Wow. So we we uh, actually the first game I worked on was funny because I uh, I had a job offer through Pandemic and Treyarch, and this is when Treyarch was like the Spider Man and minority report company (laughs) and uh pandemic gave me an offer as well to work on like on a military simulation and i chose pandemic because i was going to be one of two designers versus on treyarch i'd be like one of ten so good choice yeah that's yeah generally you want to be on the smallest management team Mm -hmm. I, I, i there's different approaches i know some people like to find uh like mentors to work for but i've always been you want to be in the t- like i would always see you got a tech art team where i could be the only one or at least the only rigger sure <laughs> so that there's just something about it of like well you can't if you figure it out or it doesn't happen and there's just something about mm-hmm. that that's really thrilling and that really pushes you far more than simply learning from a mentor ever could in my opinion 
Mm-hmm. But that's that's awesome. I thought I was going to go there. Yeah, basically get an education in action games. And the first thing we made was a was a basically an RTS. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that didn't quite work out like that. But then I was part of the Mercenary series for about eight years, and that was a proper action game. So mm-hmm. then I uh, went to school, I guess. <laughs> nice, dude. Okay, so this is your trajectory. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what to ask you next. Because you've been around for so long. What was your favorite like thing to work in on as a designer? Where do you think, like, what kinds of games do you enjoy designing? What do you feel good at? Uh, everything, really. Um, uh, my favorite game of all was Mercenaries. Um, uh, most people know Planescape and Halo and yeah. Battlefield. Um, but uh, Mercenaries was... Um, basically a game with a great team. We all got along really well. We were all sort of, most of us were technically minded in some way, like from lightly to, to heavily. Um, and so we were able to do a whole lot with um, a pretty lean team and a pretty sort of savvy design team. Yeah. Um, and we, it was the first, it was like the last time where I got to do something from beginning to end that was completely our own. We really had no uh no oversight from a publisher i mean at some point lucas arts agreed to publish us but they weren't really heavy-handed in anything um and uh we you know we were still at the beginning of making open world games mm-hmm. and so at that point like you know gta took off and other companies were trying to do it but i think we were probably the first successful um game in the sort of open world genre after that um and it was a lot of like figuring out how the hell are we going to do this? Like, I remember at the beginning of that project, we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to make an open world game, but we're not going to stream anything. Like, I remember that quote. Um, and so it was just a matter of figuring out how are we all going to work together on one map and how are we going to figure out like this is actually going to be able to fit in memory. And, you know, our, our big sort of technological breakthrough at that time was being able to blow everything up in the world. So we're like, well, how are we going to be able to do that, but do that at scale? So there was just a lot of things for us to to figure out but as it came together it was just a really fun sort of little sandbox to play in so i can dig that, that. was yeah it was so you yeah, were it was really like, cool you were a team of problem well the first thing is the the most important thing is you spend so much time at work you should like the people you work with like any yes. any experience it almost doesn't matter as long as you like the people you work with it just oh, oh yeah. god it's so much better but you, it is it's huge <laughs> yeah, you created a team of problem solvers and yeah. you eliminated the what as quickly as possible. You said, we're going to do something that's just a very difficult problem. And then you just mm-hmm. set out to doing the how. Which mm-hmm. I can see that being really fulfilling for a group of kind of like technically minded people. Yeah, the guy who was the primary creative director on that series is a guy named Cameron Brown, who now runs um, Rec Room. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we are very close still. And a lot, it, he. He was a great boss for that. So I think he was able to either sort of serendipitously or by design put together a good team. And so we all are pretty still connected and I still see him all the time. So yeah. it was a good team. Is he like, um, how do I put it? There's, I can think of certain people in my career where after I worked for them, I'm like, oh, now I know someday when I'm in, like someday when I have a team, I'm going to do this exactly like you. Was he like the, the kind of, do you, when you manage people, because you manage a lot of people now, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I imagine quite a few. When you manage yeah. people, was he somebody that kind of inspired you? Do you take a lot oh, yeah. of from it? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, it's, you know, in the game industry, you hear a lot of stories about um, 
problem projects and problem people and all of that. And honestly, I really didn't run into that problem, knock on wood, for like the first <laughs> like decade. And um, in, in part, you know, eight years of experience was him. And the anecdote I always give on this is that our second project, the uh, second Mercs, was not going well because we had made this after the first game took off and then a pandemic uh, battlefront took off and destroy all humans took off and we got acquired by elevation partners and put together with bioware and at that point we were kind of flush with money mm -hmm. and we decided you know what we're going to do we're just going to rewrite all of our technology to make proper open world game engine and tools and it was just a nightmare and um you know mercenaries 2 really the only the only dif difference really ended up being um that you could do uh, co-op with it. Uh, the rest of it was pretty conservative. It ended up being pretty conservative in design just because we had to keep scaling back because the technology wasn't working. Yes. And even then it was a problem. So, you know, we're, we're in like, you know, a year out and we've come through a year where people really couldn't work very well, if at all. And uh, we would do these anonymous like milestone surveys and they would just be full of vitriol. Like, why well, you guys are stupid. What are you doing? And, um, but for him, um, you almost every time in these surveys you'd get, I really can't stand this project and what's happening, but wow, I love the creative director. Hmm. And, I, and I remember thinking, you know, he's responsible for all this, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, like not literally all of it, but you know, he's the head of the project, right? But I've never seen anything before and after that, like where even in the midst of something not going well, um, people were, you know, we'd get positive anonymous responses on the on the person who was in charge. So oh. um, I think that was a testament to his leadership style, which was, you know, never, never kind of, um, you know, dictating anything or, you know, being kind of a hothead or anything it was always like, let's figure this problem out and, you know, let's figure out different solutions to this. And he's, he's been like that ever since. Yeah. It's one of the things we don't, um, well, I mean, we will, talk in this podcast sometimes about mm -hmm. different things like uh, the, they go wrong in a big way in studios mm -hmm. and, and like a big thing that can go wrong is anytime you're fundamentally reworking technology in a way where the people at the mm -hmm. studio can't work or yep. I can think of the times I've been most miserable in my career have usually been like I'm working at a place we go in and the editor just doesn't open some days right it's like <laughs> today the editor doesn't open and you just uh. sit there just completely blocked and hating yes. life like yes and that was that was pretty common back in the 90s actually i think mm -hmm. like i remember talking to other studios about that that just doesn't happen anymore like we just don't allow that any i don't know in the beginning that was just kind of acceptable uh in the beginning for me in the in the 2000s was when i started mm -hmm. right um it, that I know so many people. I remember I moved out to San Francisco and I knew so many people that have been in the industry for 10 years and never shipped a game. Um, and they would tell me their experiences in the industry are like, you know what? Sometimes like editors don't open and you know, like this is just part of working in technology. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's just not the case anymore. No. No. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like we've, we've grown up and we realize that, you know, you know, every moment that someone can't work, they're miserable. It's not like, hey, you know, great, I can't work. And now I'm just going to like sit around and do nothing. That's nice. It's people who are in the games industry because they want to be productive and they want to, to make great things. And you make them miserable when they can't work. Yeah. So that's we've. Yeah, we can go into tool stuff. I think one of the more interesting <laughs> things to go into, though, is actually because uh, we don't talk in this podcast much about 
managing somebody that isn't working out we can't right mm, like mm-hmm. it's difficult especially mo- most of the time i'm interviewing or hanging out with people who are uh running small teams mm-hmm. and often we're talking about like what we're doing right now and if you have a problem with somebody in your team if somebody's it's just not working out or you know you can't put them on blast on a podcast right like mm-hmm. you can't actually talk about it right. uh and in general like I think some of the more interesting stories, the ones that never get told, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, How to to deal with somebody, how to determine the difference between somebody who's questioning you because they're passionate and they really want the game to do well and somebody who's Mm -hmm. toxic and just constantly negative and dragging down Mm -hmm. the team. How do you know which one that is? Especially, it's really easy to doubt yourself if you're the creative or if you're in charge of a team. You, you don't mm-hmm. want to tell people they can't question you, right? Like you you want to take feedback, but at the same time, there is such a thing as somebody who's so negative that they just drag down everybody. Mm-hmm. That it's just mm-hmm. that you go to work a lot. The people you work with, if you enjoy working with them, it makes your life better. If you go to work and there's just this constant vortex of negativity sitting next to you, it can make your life hell. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Talk, it's um, talking around a problem I've seen a couple times. <laughs> yeah, and it takes. Oh God, this is this is one you can go way into. Um, um I mean, you you basically. There was this great talk. I forget the the name of the woman. She worked at Google, but she made a she wrote a book called Radical Candor, mm-hmm. and um, she just talked about you know how you can become effective as a manager. And she had some interesting sort of pithy ways to describe typical faults. And one of them was ruinous empathy, um, where you try to sort of objectively see the the side of any situation and any person, um, even if that person, you know, clearly has problems that are beyond your control or making people's lives miserable, that sort of thing. And you know, I think for, for most of us who are not like sociopaths, you know, we like people, we want to work with them and uh, we, we want to be able to see the the positive in everything they do um but uh, if you go too far on that you can really um you know let problems persist longer than they should and that's probably one that i learned over time is that um, you need to be a lot more frequent and direct with people who are causing that kind of sadness on a team because you know it's it's a story you brought it up and i've heard it and many people have talked about it there's usually there can be, you know, people that just make everyone around them miserable. And um, in many cases, unfortunately, like that's a managing out situation, you know, even though that they might be a complete expert at what they do and, you know, really, really talented, it's at the cost of like so much, you know, sort of human potential on your team that, yeah. you know, ends up being not worth it. Um, it's, uh, you know, like you say, you have to kind of, um, sort of see over time and kind of know each situation. But I think the related is just, you know, management in sort of big teams, games, I think tech as well, like oftentimes is pretty poor because not because people aren't good. It's because they spend most of their career preparing to be a designer or a tech artist or, a, uh, you know, an engineer or whatever. They don't, pre- they don't prepare any time being a manager and all of a sudden they're put in that role. Mm. And, and then, you know, many times they fail at it and then they don't get another chance. And then we just repeat the cycle of bad management. Mm. Um, and so 
if you can get people that have done it for a long time, they start to have the empathy of all the kind of sort of situations they've been in that are that provide them the kind of you know intuition to go, oh, what is this situation like with this person? How do we need to manage and deal with this better than just trying to be, um, you know, more kind of gut about it? So yeah, it's always hard, but usually when people say this person is making everybody around them miserable, that's usually leading to okay, we need to make a big change. Yeah, it's not always that obvious though. I know. That's the thing. Like, <laughs> it, it's uh, it's easy to talk about in the abstract, and it, mm -hmm. it's definitely. You can describe a situation and you can imagine it from two totally different perspectives mm -hmm. or where the person is right or the person is wrong or it doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong they're just becoming too much of a problem at the wrong moment or mm -hmm. like there's there's no one set of rules for this sort of thing and i think like the something we don't talk about ever on this podcast i don't think we've ever talked about is uh if you get somebody if you talk to somebody like y yourself um, mm -hmm. if I, if you and I were at a bar and I was to ask you, what was the hardest thing you've ever had to do? I bet you could tell me about somebody that you had to fire and how hard it was oh, and yeah. how much sleep you lose mm -hmm. over that. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's like, uh, it, it's something that doesn't get talked about. Like with the, the process for that, what, how emotionally taxing it is, how difficult it is, how much you want things to not go that way. Miserable. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Like it's. Well, I mean, I think, you know, depends on, you know, I, sh I guess what I've said before to some, some, some folks I've worked with is like, it should be really, really hard to lay people off because it's beyond, you know, your desire or your will to be able to do that. And um, it's not the people's fault. Um, you know, if you do have a situation where someone is actively disengaged, then that should be easy because we're all on the same page. But it's rarely like that. You'd be surprised. Um, like I've seen, yeah. I don't know. I've been around a bit. I've seen people yeah. moved sideways into mm -hmm. somebody. We moved sideways into the marketing art team after a while. Like mm -hmm. the a common thing is to be promoted off the team to somewhere mm -hmm. else where you'll be made redundant in a year. Like yeah. the larger companies I've worked at will never fire anybody, right. just for yeah, liability true. reasons. Yeah, true. But so it's um, yeah. Uh, now after like. I'm thinking, I'm just trying to think back like an anecdote, like the first time I ever had to do that, it was rough. Like it was, you know, I was up for a couple of days and, you know, these are people, people I had worked with for a very long time. Um, and uh, you just, you know, you're sat there with the guilt of like, well, I'm still here, right? Yeah. <laughs> and this person's not going to be there. And this was situation that, was bad. The way Could you're I... describing it, it sounds like a layoff. Like, yeah. are you laying off a bunch of people? Yeah. Yeah, not a bunch, but certainly like it was the first time it had happened in my career where I was I had to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you get torn up with like, what could I have done better? How would I do this, you know, differently? What happens when this happens to me? You know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's, uh, it's rough. Yeah. That's brutal. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I took us in this direction. Oh, it's no, very, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very good to talk to somebody who's like a studio, like a game director. You mm -hmm. you hire people that manage other people, too. So you actually mm -hmm. hire managers for the most part. What do you what do you look for in managers? What do you is it different? Do you not necessarily look for the most skilled person? You look for more soft skills or somebody with uh, soft experience? skills is a big part of it. Yeah. Like it's. Um, you know, you want, they don't have to necessarily be like a principal or an architect in their field. Um, they certainly have to have expertise in their field and they have to be in, 
sort of working it so they can understand people's problems. But the number one thing you're looking for is, is being able to actually work with people and manage them and, you know, be a mentor to them. And, um, you know, those people are relatively not rare, but I mean, like they're rarer than, um, than other folks. Um, just because I think most people, when, certainly when I was starting, like you thought about a leadership role as being, oh, I'm the lead. Now I have control of this creatively. And what it really meant was I'm a lead. Now I manage people, yeah. you know, in many cases. <laughs> I'm the, they don't work for you. You work for them. Right. <laughs> and you don't, you don't tell them what to do. You convince them that your idea is good. And if yeah. you don't convince them that idea doesn't happen. Yeah. It's not w- quite what you think when you start. I, you know, it's, I, I, you know, I talked to my father about this and he would always be like, befuddled about it because I'd be like, yeah, I have to persuade them to do things. You know, I have to persuade them that these ideas are good because they have options and they can go elsewhere and they're talented. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? Like in his, in his mind, it's like, you know, uh, I'm not gonna be mean to my dad, but like people are mutable assets or something. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't really work that way when you have a talented workforce. Right. No. Um, and I, a talented workforce too. I mean, it, the, so much of, game development is passion and if mm-hmm. so much of every field benefits from understanding the game design like mm-hmm. if you understand and appreciate what you're making it's easier to make it you'll make the right decision the first time you won't it's very easy to make art that runs contrary to the design for instance like mm-hmm. the art team needs to actually kind of, not necessarily be designers but have the vision and want to make mm-hmm. that game rather than make a portfolio piece that happens to be in your game you know oh yeah and it's like getting people excited about the game is I think probably the biggest and most important job of a designer. You're not convincing the world. Right. You're actually convincing your team. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's huge. It's like that. It's like, um, you know, uh, your point about passion, that's basically what we ended up looking for, for the halo team, which was this huge hiring endeavor. When we went from like 20 people at three, four, three to like 350, yeah. over about three years and we just had to hire we had us to interview like i mean i'm sure a lot of us hired or sorry interviewed over 100 people um i remember when that started and we were talking yeah. mad shit because we're like you yeah. can't just you can't just spin up a studio from nothing even <laughs> if you have an ip you can't just do that there's going to be bumps and i'm sure there were like i'm sure a lot of like there was a lot of con just because you have two people who are both fantastic doesn't mean they'll get along and just you can't just make a studio happen from force from money and IP. But I mean, they did. They did. We, yeah, the, how that happened was, uh, and this is probably the proudest achievement that a lot of us went through, was um, we knew that, like a lot of us coming into that studio. But um, the thing that happened was they made a couple of key hires early. Um, they hired um, a guy named David Berger, who was the tech director. And he was previously with the company FASA. Um, they hired Kenneth Scott, who was the art director of ID, and he. Uh, and then they hired uh, me, and I had worked at Pandemic, from design. Mm-hmm. And between all three of us, we ended up bringing in probably what 40, 50 game developers. Um, so right off the bat, like in the first year and a half or so, we had like a fully fledged super expert, you know, game team to work okay. and make make Halo. So it wasn't like. Hey, you know, so and so worked at SharePoint. It's out of Microsoft, and now they're going to be, you know, yeah. a game designer. Um, I mean, one way to do it is to hire directors and tell them to poach their entire teams, because then you know you have a group of people that work together. Right. Which you it know, sounds but, uh, like kind of what you did. Well, I think. Well, that's actually so. Uh, 
the truth of what happened was two thirds of it was that FASA and in particularly pandemic got shut down. So um, I joined 343 in, I think, April of 2009. And then pandemic got shut down in one of EA's uh, um, uh, sort of shutdown situations in November of 2009. And as soon as that happened, like I was sitting there, we're recruiting on an Excel sheet. I was like, hire this person and this person and this person. And we just ended up with like, you know, 10, 15 people from pandemic who ended up being kind of a big core of the, the Halo team. Um, so, you know, that was what enabled um, the studio initially, I think, or at least a big part of what en- en- enabled it to get going. Mm-hmm. Another thing to the passion point was uh, there was this, uh, there was this uh, email post something, I'll, I won't say the origin of it, but basically it came from a certain industry luminary who I won't name. Um, but that person basically said, ha ha, three, four, three. I can't wait for them to totally fail. And I'm going to have uh, uh, the s'mores out roasting over the fire for when that happens. And I took that message and I printed it out like 40 copies of it. And I posted it up on everybody's wall. <laughs> so they go, that guy doesn't want you to succeed right now. <laughs> um, and, um, and so obviously that generated a nice us versus them at that time. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so, you know, we went we went looking to find people who were, like you say, really passionate. We were looking for at that time, halo fan. Number one, mm-hmm. um, didn't necessarily mean that they had to have super expertise at something or other. We were just looking for like-minded people. And what we found through lots of interviewing is the passion would come through fast. Like, you know, if, if they didn't have passion about halo as a game, then, you know, they would be able to kind of talk about it generically. Um, and oftentimes they would, for whatever reason, concentrate heavily on story. Mm. Um, but if they really cared about it, then they would be able to go into some sort of deep detail on their thought process for why the game was how it is and how they passionately felt about it. And they clearly had played a lot of it. And you could just tell those people like night and day from everybody else. And we just ended up hiring all of them. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that made for a very faithful first game from the studio to to its history um but it's kind of i think what we had to make in order to be able to sort of lay the foundations for everything to come because if we had come out the door and, and it was like call of duty halo or something mm-hmm. um you know the fan base probably would have been nuts um, yeah. so we decided to be a little bit more true to form and, and it, that that made it easier for us to make it it's it's also just a lot easier to get people to align behind a vision if that vision is this incredibly successful game that everybody we've hired already loves like yes yeah. it's easy to get yeah. people to make that game again you know so yeah. I, I can dig that i is it that easy at your current place because you're you're you kind of took over a team mm-hmm. you're also hiring people there's been a little bit of turnover um mm-hmm. how are you getting everybody excited around this this new game that you're making like hmm, no, nobody's no industry luminary is shitting on your studio right now yeah, to... no, we're we're off the radar. I mean, the mm-hmm. the probably the big things is that um, you know there's there's myself, and then uh, we we hired a, a man named Mark Rubin, who was the uh, base of the studio head of Infinity Ward for like I don't know 2010 to 2015, something like that. And he was their very first producer at Infinity Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back, he was like 10 years with Call of Duty. Um, 
And so uh, the two of us, I think, have a lot of expertise in making certain things. And we've tried to. You might um, be working on a shooter. We don't know. We'll never know for sure. Um, <laughs> we could, you know, we could be making a puzzle game. It could be, um, man. <laughs> the, we, um, I think we just, uh, you know, are relying on our expertise and sort of our experience of leading and making things. And I think both of us have kind of gone through um, sort of, you know, good and bads of how you make stuff and seeing patterns and all that. And because of that, I think we're able to make some smart decisions early about, you know, what we should focus on and prioritize versus other things. Is the team and currently really excited to work on it or? I, oh. I think I have to say yes, of course. <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess I can't. There's not so much I can. Oh, this sucks. Usually I talk about current events, but it's hard. I want you back when, okay, the day after you announce, you have to come back in the podcast. I mean, yeah, have you like... It, you know, I can I can tell you all about uh, you know previous projects and <laughs> how they're going, but no, I mean, I uh, when I sign up to do something for a company, um, you know, I'm 100% in there because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm either supposed to do that or not be there, and um, you know, I do everything I can to try and you know motivate and excite people, and um, like you said, a, a big part of the design role is to evangelize and promote and make people excited about things. And if they're not, um, then that's your fault, right? Like that, or that's the creative direction fault. That's just, you know, people who are projecting the vision, not getting people excited about the work on something. So um, that's a, a big chunk of my sort of anxiety ends up being that, which is like, are we reaching everybody? Is everybody happy here? You know, every one-on-one -on -one I have, I'm like, are you enjoying yourself? Yeah. You know, um, it, uh, it, it, it's probably the 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 game the design of the game technology and all that doesn't keep me up at night. What keeps me up at night is like if you know the environment artist tells me in a one on one like I don't know, man. Do you have? <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not feeling this. Do you have one on ones with or one on ones with everybody in your studio? A lot of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't do I can't do it all the time, but I, uh, you know, I obviously I meet with all my people regularly, and then I meet with our engineering team and some of our artists and. Um, it's, uh, it's making sure like that whatever their personal individual, um, interests or problems or whatever are getting heard by somebody, mm. you know, or making, making sure that that happens. So, do you, so you mostly manage your team. Do you also have to manage like Ubisoft, convince Ubisoft that this is a good idea regularly? Oh yeah. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're pitching up and down basically. Up and down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Usually I try to I, I try to be vertical on the whole project, which is like everything from pitching to a to a, uh, an executive to placing a crate. Um, and that doesn't mean like I'm trying to own a lot of things from the implementation side of things. In fact, I don't own nearly as much anymore, but I always try to find something to where I can understand how the sausage gets made in some way. Yeah, you have um, to if you have to use your own tools, you have to be a part mm -hmm. of your own process. You have to feel the pain that everybody on your team feels. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you don't like it's hard for you to know, and you're just like, well, I don't understand. Like, what are you talking about? I've made games before. This isn't hard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, have you tried to use this editor? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I think we've actually we've talked quite a bit, so I think mm -hmm. we should call it here. And I do want you to come back after you've announced, because now I'm curious. Sure. And I'd love to, I'd like to hear how things change over time. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Love to. Well, it's been great having you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was fun. All right. This has been Scott Warner and Gwen Frey, and you've been in the Dialogue Box.